chapter in Luke's Gospel. Uh, it's number, page number 1062, if you're using the Pew Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and we'll begin to read at verse 36. We're looking, uh, continuing really where we were last week, looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And uh, you remember that the, the, the women have gone to the tomb with the spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. The tomb is empty. He's not there. He appears to Mary Magdalene. Uh, he also appeared to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And they return to Jerusalem to tell the other believers. Somewhere in between that, uh, the Bible doesn't record the instance, but he also appeared to Simon Peter. And they're in that locked upper room, John tells us. It's a locked upper room, uh, something that, that Luke omits for some reason. And we pick up uh, the story at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they'd seen a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled. What is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Amen. This is the word of God. Uh, Colin is going to bring the series to conclusion tonight, looking at these final few verses on the ascension. But that's for this evening, this morning. It's uh, good news of great joy for all people, the resurrection, living outside the box. A little play on words there for those of you who want to muse yourselves with that. A little illustration of what I want to, to talk about. When I was um, working in a power station many years ago, part of the first aid equipment we had was something called a Stevenson Minuteman Resuscitator. Uh, it was, there's some pictures of it there. Uh, it was uh, powered by an oxygen cylinder and it could deliver variable concentrations of oxygen during resuscitation. Uh, it could also be used to give oxygen therapy and it came in its little red box complete with a suction device for getting the gunk out of people's nasal and throat passages. Just like you'd need to know that. Uh, it had a face mask with it. And it also had a plastic pipe that could be inserted into a patient's windpipe uh, when, in the case of physical injury, there was extensive damage to the face or the neck. Now, I, I think the procedure was called tracheal intubation. Um, getting the plastic tube in the windpipe, uh, in layman's terms, that was the important thing. Not down the gullet. Apparently, oxygen into the stomach's not a good idea during resuscitation. Uh, it said on the lid of the box that should only be carried out by a competent medical doctor. Um, one night shift, my colleague and I were um, just chatting away, and he said suddenly, um, I'm going to call him Joe Bloggs uh, for the sake of anonymity. 
Um, I was going to call him John Smith, but that's his real name. Uh. <clears throat> anyway, Joe um, asked me if I had been trained in the use of the Minuteman Resuscitator and knew how to work it. Uh, I, I was first aid trained within my work. Uh, it's, it, that certificate's lapsed, so don't come to me with any complaints this morning. Uh, there's so many medics in here, actually, you'll get treated better than they and he anyway. You know, it's, uh, this is the place to get ill. Anyway, uh, Joe, John, um, said to me, look, if, if anything happened to me, if I stopped breathing, could you get me started again? And I said, well, I've been trained in it, never had to use it in anger, but I would do my absolute utmost to make sure that you lived again. He said, these are his words, he says, that is really good news. To know that I'm working with somebody who knows how to do that stuff is just tremendous for me, he says. So then I thought, I wanted the same kind of assurance. So I said, John, oh, sorry, Joe. Um, I said, do you know how to work it? Haven't a clue, he said. But that doesn't matter, was his exact words. I knew how to work it. That was comforting for him. He hadn't a clue, couldn't care less. So I knew where I stood anyway, didn't I? But you know, as far as good news goes, it bears no comparison to the really good news that Jesus' resurrection meant to the disciples. Now, the gospel, which is just another word for good news story, uh, it's not simply that Christ died. Uh, that's the focus on the cross. And, and, you know, we as evangelicals, we as evangelical Christians, are really good at understanding what the, the power of the cross does for us. A lot of our preaching is cross-centered. Uh, a lot of our faith is cross-centered. We know that Jesus died for the sin of the world. And it's important that we have that. But, you know, it's also important to understand that Jesus rose again from the dead. It's not just that the tomb is empty, but that he actually does appear to his disciples in his resurrected physical body. Some years ago, as a, as a Bible college student, I asked a senior pastor, do you know, um, it was in connection with a lady who had come to me and said, I want to leave my body for medical research when I die. Uh, and, and as pastors, we get asked all sorts of things for advice. And I wasn't sure the ethical implications of Christians leaving bodies, for, you know, and, and you guys that work in that field, you know you need them, so uh, we're not going to argue about this. But I was confused about it at the time, so I went to a senior pastor and said, look, is it okay for this church member to leave her body for medical research when she dies? And this senior pastor said, well, it, see, it all depends on what you believe the resurrection is. Do you think the resurrection is physical, or do you think it's spiritual? I mean, physical, of course. Well, he said, you know, maybe it's just more of a spiritual experience. Well, he was wrong, of course. Um, and, and the lady did leave her body to medical research, and it must be the ultimate rejection. They didn't want it, so we buried her when she died. <laughs> you know, the resurrection is actually the defining event of Christianity. Now, for some of you, that might sound taking the focus off the cross too much. Let me explain what I mean by that. Someone has described the resurrection of Christ as the defining event in Christianity. The Apostle Paul, who declared assertively in 1 Corinthians 1 and 23, but we preach Christ crucified, went on to say that if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. 
So we preach Christ crucified. Yes, he died for our sin. Yes, he was buried in the tomb. But hallelujah, yes, he rose again. And that actually gives us confidence. It actually brings a focus to the preaching of the cross, that Jesus died for our sin. In these two statements, we see the need to balance our message of good news, focusing on the death, for sure, but also the resurrection of Jesus coming back to life in his physical body. Now, on your bulletin sheet today, um, just to check how many people actually read this, you'd have seen on the front of the bulletin sheet, there's a little pre-sermon brain teaser. Did you notice that? Oh, no, I never noticed that. Oh, that's interesting. How many people tried doing that? Take a look at it now if you've not seen it. Um, Nine dots arranged in a little cube form. And what you're to do is, with four straight lines, join up the dots without your pen leaving the paper. And most of you won't be able to do it. But let me show you how it's done, or let the guys at the back show you how it's done. Four straight lines, here we go. One, two, three, four. Ah. Clever, huh? Do you know, most people who fail... To complete that puzzle, normally try to keep their lines within the box. But in order to complete the picture, you need to think outside the box. Thinking inside the box simply means that we accept the status quo. Uh, It was in 1899, C.H. Jewell, then the director of the U.S. Patent Office, said, "Everything everything that can be invented has been invented. Over a hundred years ago, he said that. How wrong was he? Well, he was an inside-the-box thinker. Thinking outside the box requires openness to new ways of seeing the world and a willingness to explore. And I share that because Jesus' disciples, at the time when he appears to them, they're thinking and living with inside a spiritual box, following his death, his trial, uh, his, sorry, his trial, his crucifixion and his death. Now, before we judge them, Imagine how many of us would have felt any differently. I don't think any of us would. Wouldn't you also have been frightened, anxious, full of grief, dejected and defeated? You see, for the disciples, this incredible three-year adventure was over. Life itself carried no meaning and nothing made sense. They had been living in the hope that Jesus was about to usher in a new kingdom and in which his followers, they as his followers, would play a strategic and important role. But now their leader's dead. Their hopes are dashed. It's very obvious from what we see in the preceding verses um, last week and again here today that they had no comprehension or expectation that things weren't to remain like this. Jesus is dead and dead people stay dead. That's the normal way of things. But right then, as they're thinking this, living inside their spiritual box, unable to see a solution and a way forward, the most unexpected thing begins to happen. Stories about the tomb being empty. The two from the Emmaus Road report back that they've seen the risen Jesus. Simon Peter, too, has had a similar experience. And just as they're discussing these things, Jesus suddenly appears. Right there beside them in a locked room. It was shocking. It was unbelievable. You see, they're still thinking inside this box. And it's understandable that they reacted the way they did, because we would all have done the same thing. 
over the years, uh, each of us develop a framework for understanding how life works. We follow certain rules about the way we experience reality. But immediately after Jesus appeared to the disciples, they begin to think outside their spiritual box, outside the box of their normal experiences and expectations. So as we come to the body of the text this morning, I want to pose just a couple of questions for us as individuals and as a congregation. Are we living inside or outside our spiritual experience, the box of our spiritual experience and expectations? In other words, is this as good as it gets for us as a church or for us as far as individual spiritual experience goes? And then secondly, how can we, as did the first disciples, move from being timid, fearful, and doubting followers who prefer to meet behind closed doors to becoming courageous witnesses to proclaim the good news of Jesus' saving power to a lost religious and secular world. Well, the first thing that uh, the disciples were invited to do was examine the proof of Jesus' physical body. Verses 36 through 43. Jesus appears to his disciples and says to them, Peace be with you. Um, someone would correct me at the door. I think the Hebrew would be something like uh, Shalom Alechem. Peace be with you. The reaction to the disciples surely confirms, sorry, the reaction of the disciples surely confirms that they had no expectation at all that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. You know, you'd think if they had, they would spontaneously burst into a chorus of Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Although it wasn't written until 1708. Uh, you know what I'm saying. They would have known he was coming. They would have been excited that he was there. But instead, they were petrified. Terrified at his appearing. Instead, they were absolutely fearful and troubled. John tells us in John 20, verse 19, that the room was locked. And so their immediate assumption was to suspect that what they were seeing was some sort of psychic apparition. Psychic in the sense of supernatural, it certainly was. But ghostly apparition, it certainly wasn't. To confirm the reality of both who he was and what he was, Jesus does three things. First of all, he speaks words of reassurance. And his opening words, just so tender, so gracious. Peace be with you. Remember, folks, this is the group of guys who, to a man... Days earlier, deserted Jesus in his greatest hour of need. One of them even denying him three times. Wouldn't call yourselves friends, where were you when I needed you? Have been a more appropriate response. Now, if you think it would, then you really don't know anything about the way that Jesus looks on sinners and backsliders. If you've never come to the Savior before today, if you're someone who does know the Savior but you're backslidden, the risen Lord Jesus, as he does with these guys, will look upon your life today and say, Peace be with you. He's not against you. You've disappointed him, you've let him down, but his heart is so tender, so gracious towards you. Seeing that they were troubled and their minds were full of doubts, he immediately sought to reassure them. 
That's just so Jesus, isn't it? That's certainly the Jesus that I meet in the pages of Scripture. It's the Jesus that I've come to love and adore and follow as my Savior. But it's not the Jesus that the church that I grew up in always presented to me. You know, Jesus is watching you syndrome. Jesus only likes good people. Jesus knows what you did, knows how you think, and you're bad, condemned because of it. That's not Jesus. That's just an insecure, immature church that hasn't really fallen in love with the real Savior of the world. He speaks words of reassurance, and he also shows them, secondly, the scars in his body. He shows them the scars that were evidence of the wounds inflicted upon him at his execution. Now, ghosts don't have flesh and bones. And as their fear and terror melts away, they're still unable to believe because now their fear and terror turns to joy and amazement. I wonder, have you ever been so excited about something that you simply cannot take in what you're seeing or hearing? It would be like that for us as a nation if Scotland won the World Cup. Actually, it would be like that for a situation of Scotland qualified for the World Cup. <laughs> They're just so excited. They're so full of joy. It can't be true. This is really Jesus. Just that sense of breathlessness, looking upon the scene. Now, surely what the disciples are experiencing here is simply a natural reaction to a supernatural event. If you've ever experienced or witnessed the supernatural, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, naturally, we think within our boxes. Therefore, dead people don't get up. Sick people don't get healed. Really bad people don't get saved. Society can't be changed. Our church won't ever be anything other than it is. I could never share my faith with a non-Christian or lead someone to Christ, and so on and so on. We think within our boxes. So the moment that somebody starts to experience the supernatural, they revert to type and begin to experience fear. Now let's, let's train all of us to become evangelists. <gasps> we couldn't do it. Because we think within our boxes. Thirdly, he asked them for something to eat. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Um, The authorized version says, plus some honey, honeycomb. And he ate it in their presence. Now look at the evidence here. Jesus is physically present in the room with his doubting, disbelieving disciples. They can see him. They can hear him. They can touch him. They watch him eat the food he gives to them. They give to him. And from this, I believe that Luke wants us to conclude, unlike my senior friend some years ago, that the resurrection is a real historical event that really took place and it was a physical experience. And yet, Jesus' resurrected body is no ordinary body. While it bears the marks of its pre-resurrection existence, it can now appear in a room without being hindered by the locked doors. In my road, so I just went, cool. Really cool. And the Bible says that those of us who are believers, that when our bodies that are perishable are sown in their perishable state and buried or cremated, 
that when the resurrection happens for us, we get a body like this too. Really cool to experience life in eternity with Jesus in the same way that he can. So, I don't know about you, but you know, I can get really excited about this resurrection stuff. Um, I've seen a bit of death and dying in my day. And it's devastating effects. And what an incredible comfort it is to know that death and the grave do not have the final word. You know, one of these days, I envisage a Christian funeral being interrupted as the dead in Christ rise first. Uh, I was at a young friend's funeral just last year. And as I stood there watching her earthly body, her, her, her natural, normal, her mortal body being put into the grave, I thought, Jesus, this would be such a cool time to come back. A really cool time to return to earth and for the dead in Christ to rise. Because I really believe that's going to happen. Really believe it, because the Bible teaches it. Do you know that the word um, cemetery is actually an Anglo-Saxon word, meaning God's acre. It's the place where Christians plant the bodies of their dead in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. Now, for some of you, you say, oh, well, maybe I should think about being buried rather than cremated. Uh, There's a whole thing to teach about that. On the resurrection day, don't worry. If your body has been so long in the ground, there is no trace elements of it, or if it's been cremated, bodies will be provided for the resurrection. As we get into our new preaching series in Acts, keep a note on the focus of the early church. Um, Remember, consisting of a large number of these over 500 eyewitnesses and the reality and the importance of the resurrection for the early church. It is a crucial, a vital part of the teaching that Paul describes as of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. It is central to the gospel message. Now I fear that the church in our world today has lost its confidence in the gospel. Bombarded by the need to embrace intellectual arguments and theories... We're trying to use natural means to accomplish supernatural ends. Instead, we ought simply to accept for ourselves, with the simplicity of childlike faith, and then to retell it to others that rising from the dead is just supernatural cause and effect. Because that's all it is. Rising from the dead is impossible for man, but with God all things are possible. So rising from the dead is just supernatural cause and effect. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that comes and does the resurrecting of the dead body of Jesus and brings it back to life. And we're told that when Jesus was raised from the dead, that he led captivity captive, that he raised with him, and and we are now already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And you know, the number of Christians that struggle to live the Christian life because no one has ever told them the importance of the resurrection. Jesus died on the cross for the sins and we accept that our sins are forgiven. We accept that that, that, that penal substitution has been made. But the church has forgotten to tell Christians that Jesus rose in order that you might have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you to live the Christian life. You know, for years and years and years I struggled with that. I tried to be a Christian in my own strength. And then this very dynamic evangelist came to Orkney. 
Uh, he's sitting up here in the balcony. Ian Leach came and he preached. And I went forward at one of his meetings one night. And he knew that I was a Christian. I don't remember this, Ian, but he said, what are you here for? I went, I have no idea. But God told me to come. And we chatted and, and I told him I was really struggling to be a Christian. Really didn't have the strength and the energy to cope with just being a Christ follower. And it was that night Ian said to me, he says, don't you realize that Jesus was raised from the dead in order that you can have that life? What an amazing difference that made to me. And that's a difference you need to hear today if you're a struggling Christian. Jesus didn't just die for your sin. Hallelujah, that's great. But he was raised from the dead in order to give you life. Supernatural cause and effect. Peter gives three examples, sorry, two examples of... Uh, the supernatural cause and effect when he addresses the crowd in the day of Pentecost. In verse 22 of Acts 2, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by many miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then down in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of the fact. The fact is, Jesus did physically rise from the dead. And from the true believer's perspective, it is an indisputable fact. You know, as that words in the offering song uh, we're playing there. I don't know if you picked it up just in the last little refrain. Um, the girl who sings that says, in terms of the resurrection, she says, I know he's raised from the dead. I spoke to him this morning. And some of us have spoken to the risen Lord Jesus this morning in our, in our personal quiet times, in our private prayers, as well as in our public corporate prayers. And you know, that's a truth that you don't need to be ashamed of. I spoke to Jesus this morning, the risen, resurrected Lord this morning. It's an indisputable fact for us as Christians. Hold on to that truth. Secondly, he says, consider the evidence of Scripture. The fact that Peter testifies was, of was predicted long ago, long before it happened, foretold in the Old Testament Scriptures. And as with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, Jesus opens this group of people's minds so that they can understand what the scriptures had foretold concerning him. The fulfillment of scripture is a major part of the themes of Luke. I wonder, um, have you ever wondered what it must have been like to have Jesus teach an Old Testament Christology class? Wow, that would have been amazing, wouldn't it? As he helps them to understand that from the law and the prophet and the Psalms, i.e. every part of the Old Testament, that all of these things contain prophetic witness concerning all that had happened to him. Michael Wilcock in the Bible Speaks Today, the message of Luke says, Christ and his gospel are the new hope promised in Genesis. The new life typified in Exodus. The new loss foreshadowed there and in the books that follow. They are the ideal of all the judges, all the kings either felt towards or rebelled against. They put flesh on the insights of David. They bring life to the pattern of Jonah. They fulfill the visions of Isaiah. The two testaments are one in the theology, which is the sap of the church, can only rise from roots which run deep and wide through the whole of Scripture. Every page of this book, from Genesis to Revelation, or in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, gets us to Jesus and the truth concerning Jesus. 
It's great. It's just great to preach gospel from the Old Testament. Because there's so much of it there. So much of the good news predicted in the Old Testament that Jesus, the Savior of the world, is coming. That he will die. Ignominious death. A horrible, cruel, barbaric crucifixion. But that the tomb won't be able to keep him and he'll get up again. It's all in there. In the Old Testament as well as the New. And Jesus also reminded them of his words and what he had taught them. And he explained how the whole thing fits together. All the New Testament, all the New Covenants. And it was only when these pieces came together and he opened their minds so they could understand it. That they began to understand the necessity for his suffering and death. And to see how the cross related to the purpose of his kingdom. That's why Peter can write in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things I've now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And it says, even angels long to look into these things. What an enormous privilege it was for these guys in the upper room as Jesus, the Master himself, expounds Scripture to them. But as with ever, with the great privileges come great responsibility. And as they are witnesses to everything that he has said and done, they're given the responsibility of taking this good news message first to Jerusalem and then they're to carry it to the nations. So, the third point I want to say is just reflect on the testimony of the eyewitnesses as we see it there in verse 48. Jesus commissions them to be his witnesses. And what they have heard with their own ears and seen with their own eyes becomes the central part of the gospel message that turned the world upside down. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and from which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to talk about the, the, the appearances to over 500 people. That can't be contested at the time because these people are still alive, mostly. Now, this eyewitness testimony has the authentic hallmarks of apostolic authority stamped all over it. And if the church today wants to see New Testament results, we need to get back to using New Testament means. And the crucifixion and the resurrection is central to the means of the gospel. You know, the favored message of the insipid homilist says, God loves you. Why don't you come to Jesus? God loves you. Why don't you trust Jesus as your Savior? God loves you. That's not a gospel. God loves everyone. God's love in and of itself saves no one. It's what his love drives them to do that provides the means of salvation. God loves the world so much that he sent his one and only Son into the world. So that Jesus could live a sinless life. To be the Lamb of the world who could take away the sin of the world. God's love for you meant that he did something about it. And our response to what he has done 
is the means whereby we're saved. Not just a knowledge that God loves us. We've got to know the Savior died in our place. We've got to know that, that we won't suffer death as a result of our sin, which the Bible says that would be the servant wages for us. But Jesus died for our sin and he rose again from the dead, from the grave, in order that we might have life. The resurrection is at the heart of an authentic apostolic message. Do you know in days when preachers didn't have to be careful about being politically correct. Paul says to the churches in Galatia that if anyone, be they a man or an angel, preach a gospel other than the one that gets men and women saved, let him be eternally damned. In today's world, we would say, well, do you know, they're not, well, they're kind of nominally Christian. (laughs) There's no such a thing. You're either saved or you're not. You're either an authentic believer or you're not a believer. And if you're a preacher, either you preach the true word that gets men and women saved, or you don't. There isn't an in-betweeny bit to make us feel comfortable. Paul goes on to explain why uh, the resurrection is at the heart of this message in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. So we see the truth. The preacher who leaves out the central theme from his preaching is preaching no gospel at all. The final point I want to make is there in 49. That um, you know, if we're ever to think outside the boxes of our individual and our collective experience, then this is absolute paramount importance. That we need to experience the promise and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells this group here, that they wait until they've been clothed with power from on high by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there is, there is just so much nonsense in the church today being taught about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Get back into the Jesus teaching regarding the Holy Spirit and how he's going to operate and what he's come to do and, and, and what he's come for. Um, in John 14, Jesus uses two verbs when talking about the action and the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, first of all, the Holy Spirit will be with you in the world in regard to bringing conviction of sin, because he's the one who tells people, in respect of the law, that they're guilty of breaking it. It's not how hard we shout or how complicated our, or simple our messages are. The Holy Spirit is the one that comes and says, you're a sinner in need of God's grace. The Holy Spirit is with us in the world as we preach, as we witness, as we testify. He's here with us today. Jesus also says in John 14 that the Holy Spirit will be in you. At that point when we say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and we invite Jesus to take lordship of our lives. When we invite Jesus into our heart, it's the Holy Spirit who comes. Bringing conversion from above. We're not to be surprised, Jesus told Nicodemus, that I say you must be born again. You must be born from above. It's the Holy Spirit who does that work. So he convicts us of our sin and he converts us into the kind of people given the new life in Jesus that we should have. 
But as we're going to discover again and again in Acts, as reflected in our verse of the year in Acts 1 and 8, Jesus uses another verb form in regard to the action of the Holy Spirit. He says that he will be upon you to clothe you with power from on high. So he's with you in the world and he's inside you, but there is an experience to be sought, I believe, from Scripture. God, empower me, anoint me to be your witness. Don't just rise up from within me, but come upon me in power and energy. So you're living the Christian life and witnessing to the truth concerning the life, the death, the, death, the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just hard, it's impossible. It's just impossible. I know that. I've tried it so often. And each time I try, I fail, and so will you. But here's some more good news. Jesus never intended you to do anything in your own strength or with your own ability for him. Warren Wearsby says, Witnessing is not something that we do for the Lord. It is something that he does through us if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And there is a great difference between the sales talk and the Spirit-empowered witness. Let's just put up these two quotes that are full on there, Ali, from um, John 15. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. If any man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus, apart from me, you can do nothing. We would like to read, apart from Jesus, we can be ineffective in our work, but we can do a little. He says, no, you can't do anything. Without me living through you, nothing works, individually or as a church. So in conclusion, is the resurrection good news of great joy for all people? You may respond. Is it? Is it? Not if they've never heard, it's not. Not if it's never heard. And not if it isn't communicated in a sensitive and culturally relevant way. You see, guys, whatever you might be making of the current Blowing Your Cover study series, enthused or put off by it, its purpose is to get us thinking outside or let's do no personal evangelism boxes and into the mode of let's naturally do supernatural things in our relationship with God and our relationship with other people, wherever we are at, at any time. You know, that could be really good news for a person that you can share the gospel with. After all, you may be the only person ever in that position to do that. And with this I finish. Joe. My friend John, back in the power station. You know, as far as I know, he never got any training in using the Stevenson Minuteman resuscitator. But then, of course, he said that didn't matter. He was all right. The truth is, nobody can now train to use the Stevenson Minuteman resuscitator because they were withdrawn in the 1990s. Although, if you're quick, there is one on sale on eBay for about £50 at the moment. I checked. Imagine what would have happened if the early church had adopted the attitude of that they were all right and had kept the gospel message concerning the resurrection to themselves. Imagine what will happen if the gospel baton 
that has been passed from generation to generation of faithful followers of Jesus is dropped by our generation. We need to be taught, we need to be trained, we need to be equipped to do the stuff that Jesus expects us to do. You know, using the resuscitator, um, an operator, could help someone breathe again and experience life. Here's something for you to ponder. In taking the gospel message and speaking it relevantly, sensitively into other people's lives, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, any one of us could be the means whereby that person experiences eternal life. Let's pray.